This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay welcome Mark Yarn, the author of Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge, to revisit the legendary Deep Six compilation. It just occurred to me that Green River is sort of the Uncle Tupelo of grunge. The best way I could describe it is it sounds like a Ted Nugent record backwards. Probably actually on his Blackberry drinking a Four Loco right now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are, well, we're breaking the rules tonight. Do you feel like a rebel? I do. This is exciting. We're, we're actually going to tackle a piece of music that was not recorded in the 1990s or released in the 1990s. I'm sure something well, well, was released, well, well, well. released in 90. It was re-released in the 90s. Well, it was re-released, so we're getting around that. We we found a a, a sneaky way to get it past the uh, get it past the management of Dig Me Out, which are very strict. Yeah, we're gonna review. I guess you'd say legendary Deep Six compilation, which came out on CZ C slash Z. I want to make sure I get that in there. C slash Z Records in 1986. In order to tackle this legendary piece of music, we have a special guest. The author of Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge, joining us, Mr. Mark Yarm. Mark, thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, and, and thanks for bending your rules. When I when I suggested that we do the Deep Six compilation, I, I wasn't paying so much attention that you only did 90s albums. So if I had known, I probably wouldn't have challenged you like that, but... I think the ninety it was re re it was released in ninety four so on CD so uh, uh, through A and M so I think we're we're good April ninety four so and, um, and if there was a record to to break the rules for it I think this one would make a pretty good case so yeah we're good we've been certainly it, it has the roots in a lot of uh, what became known as 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 grunge of the nineties so I, I think I think we're on solid standing here. <laughs> I checked with the board. By the uh, alt rock yeah. police. No, the the board has said is okay. We can we can proceed. So <laughs> we will do so. Make sure that you stick around at the end of the podcast. Once we have made it through the bands on uh, the Deep Six compilation, we're going to have a trivia contest, and you're going to have a chance to win a vinyl copy sealed is that true mark it is it is sealed it's it's straight from chris hanzik he was uh kind enough to um send me a copy when i told him i was looking for a giveaway prize for when the book came out and he was kind enough to send me one i think i think he has quite a few left over but they're 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 they patch a pretty fetch a pretty penny on on ebay probably around a hundred dollars or so last i checked so this is a this is a really good prize so you're going to have a chance to take home the Deep Six compilation with our trivia question at the end of the podcast. So stick around and we will explain that once we get to the end. So let's talk about you for a moment before we get into the album and specifically the book, which Jay and I have been reading the past uh, couple days. It's really fascinating in that it's not simply one person's take. You have compiled a massive amount of time and people into this one like I don't, I don't know it's it's sort of like the complete guide to everything grunge and it's it's fairly amazing where did where's the genesis of this book in terms of how you came about to write it and um the idea for it 
Well, the genesis of it is I was a senior editor at Blender Magazine, which you might recall, um, folded a few years back. But before it did, I wrote an oral history of Sub Pop, the Sub Pop label, which uh, was celebrating its uh, 20th anniversary a few years ago. And it was the 20th anniversary of Sub Pop oral history, the whole arc from the grunge years to, you know, the shins and beyond. Obviously, the, the most mythical part of that, the legendary part, is, is those early grunge years. Nirvana, Mud Honey, Soundgarden. I mean, the the Blender piece, uh, I mean, it was a six-page piece. By that time, Blender was fair, a fairly thin magazine, which is why it ended up folding. And uh, so there wasn't much editorial room. It was probably a four pages of text total, which is a lot. There's very little space to cram in 20 years of history. So there was a lot left on the cutting room floor. I realized that I, you know, there, were, there was the making of something in there, a book or, or beginnings of it, if I, I wanted it to. That thought did occur to me, but I never would have done anything with it. I never would have had the, I would never would have gotten off my ass and done anything. Had, right. You know, the, the guy who became my agent contacted me and said, hey, uh, why don't you turn this into a book, into the oral history of grunge, kind of in the spirit of, of Please Kill Me, the oral history of punk that being one of the the touchstones uh, of the book, of course. So, uh, you know, out of that, that that's where the, the book emerged from. And, and uh, two and a half, three years later, here we are. Are you actually from Seattle? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not from Seattle. I'm actually from mm-hmm. Connecticut originally. And now I'm in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, although I did go out to Seattle a number of times to interview folks and, and do research. I'm also not related to Mark Arm of, of Mud Honey or Green River, <laughs> which is, I mean, you, you laugh, but and I, I do have to make that, uh, especially on the internet, it gets very confusing. People see Mark Yarm and, and they conflate me and Mark Arm and it's very confusing, you know, a guy writing a book on grunge who has a name very similar to one of the, you know, the foremost proponents of, of the sound. So it's good. it was also a good icebreaker in starting many of these interviews. An inside joke, I guess, amongst the, the community, I suppose. So did you actually get to speak to everybody in the book or were some of these taken from, like, did you have to do research on interviews and pull quotes from, like, old newspapers and or or magazines or anything like that or was this all first person for the most part most of them uh i did myself either on the phone or in person i mean there were some people that just weren't accessible i mean for instance some of the pearl jam guys because they were doing their own book and movie um so some some of it is from it's all noted in the book what's what's archival material but uh the good bulk of it i'd say 90 percent of it is is all original the thing that's so cool about it is that it's linear in terms of you start at the very beginning seeds of what would become what we know as grunge and what people perceive it to be. Did you know that that was what was going to be your, I guess, approach to it? Or was it in interviewing people that you started to see, you know, this is the direction it's going. I'm not going to just go band by band or cover certain aspects. I'm going to go chronologically. Right. Well, I mean, the the plan... From the beginning, it was always to begin, begin with the deep six bands, the bands we're going to discuss tonight, because it seemed like such such a great starting point, these these six bands that, that and on this compilation that kind of became essentially the first 
record that kind of typifies what became known as grunge. It was kind of a bellwether for that. So it was always my plan to start with these six bands. And if you trace their lineage and, or, you know, how they, they spread out over time, you'll see how incredibly incestuous they are or how, say, you know, Malfunction, Andy Wood from, the, from that band went on to form Mother Love Bone with members of Green River, who ultimately became Pearl Jam and also Green River spread out to become mud honey so it's a little bit hard to <laughs> you have to have a basic there, there are charts online that you can look at to, to see how exactly how incestuous this whole scene was but you know the the roots are pretty much there there i mean granted there, there was a punk scene in seattle before this but this this seems like a very good solid starting point well that's a good um segue into actually getting into the history of the deep six compilation for those not familiar, this came out on uh, C slash Z Records in 1986. Yes. There mm-hmm. were six bands, hence the name Deep Six: Soundgarden, Melvins, Green River, Skinyard, Malfunction, and the U Men. And then it was re-released by CZ and then also A and M in 1984. And that was the CD release. The original pressing was on vinyl, obviously. You you cover a, a lot of it, and we're going to get into it in the individual. Bands, but do you want to talk a little bit about how the the compilation actually sort of came together with regards to the label that it was came out on? Because I think a lot of people would assume that well, if the first thing that came out of Seattle probably came out on Sub Pop, but that's not true. You know, there there are a whole bunch of things going on at all this all at the same time. But uh, yeah, I mean, there, there this, the the famous Sub Pop 100 compilation came out um, not too long after after Deep Six. But, you know, the, these things are all kind of starting up at around the same time. Obviously, in many ways, and, and some people complain about this from the scene, that, that, that in many ways, the sub-pop story has become the Seattle story. And they've become inextricably linked, and there are labels like CZ that get ignored. So, but, the, you know, this was, a, as I said, a very a, a touchstone, and, and CZ was formed by... Uh, Chris Hansick and his girlfriend uh, at the time, uh, Tina Caselli. Caselli, I'm probably mispronouncing her name. It's been a while since I've spoken with her, but um, they they co-founded this label. The the C is for her last name. The Z is for from his name, from the middle of his name. So that that's the origin of CZ. People, a lot of people associate CZ Records with Daniel House from from Skinyard because he later took over the label. Um, after Chris Hansick got sick and tired of it. Um, he didn't have a very good experience with this album. Um, a lot of people complained about it, from everything from the sound quality to his promotional efforts or, or what they felt was not enough promotional efforts. So, so but he and, he and his girlfriend, uh, or he in particular, started recording bands early on. She was in many ways more, you know, funding it, although she, she did have according to some of the bands, uh, a lot of input into into the mix and such, much to their chagrin, it seems. They started recording bands. I mean, Chris Hansick recorded Green River prior to this, and and uh, the way he sees it, it came out, out of a lot of uh, Green River uh, desire to record. Kim Thiel of Soundgarden told me that, you know, originally it was supposed to only be the two bands, Soundgarden and Green River, and it just kind of grew from there. It's a little unclear on... on whose idea it was or when it started, but the, I mean, the, those are the basic players. Well, that, that allows us to um, slide nicely 
into Soundgarden. I think of all the bands on here, they're probably, without a doubt, the most recognizable. The Melvins are probably the second, but more underground than Soundgarden. So Soundgarden is going to be the Mm -hmm. one that most people are recognized. I thought it was interesting that in the book, when we're talking about Soundgarden, Kurt Block from Fastbacks uh, is quoted, I think I got this right, I remember being excited for Soundgarden, but their songs in that sounded pretty crappy. I could have been really excited. It could have been a really exciting introduction to those sort of bands, but it just sounded like it was recorded on a cassette recorder. Jay and I discussed this. We didn't think that it, they'd actually, in re- like now, sound that bad. I, th- I thought that there's, Jay might have a different opinion, but I thought they were pretty close to what the early Soundgarden stuff sounded like. You know, All of Your Lies is on, ends up on a later release. Almost sounds the same. Jay, did you find that that was the case, that, that they were pretty crappy, or did you think that they were in line? Well, my expectations going in were that, and I hadn't listened to this. I mean, I was aware of it, but I hadn't actually uh, listened to the compilation. So going into it, my expectations were that it was going to be it was going to be very rough and and sound like it was recorded on a cassette recorder. And I was pretty surprised. I mean, it's not the greatest sounding recording ever, but particularly the Soundgarden stuff, I don't think it sounds that far from, like you said, that far from the early records. Um, obviously, those those early records are are, are better, but you know, it's not night and day for sure. And, um, you know, the band's playing is, is so good, um, at this point too, that I didn't find it distracting or I had a hard time kind of putting myself back in that time and, and, and being able to see it that way in that it would be in any way disappointing. I mean, I think that stuff sounds, particularly their stuff sounds as groundbreaking now as it, as I would imagine it would have at that time. So did you get any sense from talking to, Kim Thayall or, or the other guys that they had any reservations about what that stuff sounded like? Yeah, I mean, I know Kim and did. I mean, he talks about uh, some of the mixes sounding muddy. And, and at the time that the, uh, Chris and Tina, the couple you know, behind the compilation, were, were fighting in the studio. They're in the process of breaking up. So that, that had an effect. And I, I know the guys from uh, uh, Malfunction were disappointed with the mix. I mean, Kevin Wood, uh, the guitarist, was, you know, he, he was supposedly there's a lot more wild guitar stuff coming and going on that that got toned down somehow yeah i mean also we're also listening to the cd version i I don't know if anything was done in between the vinyl and cd versions i can't say for sure but i know a lot of people had a lot of complaints on the sound quality including i mean including chris hanzik himself who who seemed rather embarrassed by it i mean he was pretty young when he did it and just starting out so there seemed to be disappointment in many quarters about how it sounded hmm. maybe it's an issue of expectations like they expected um it to sound like those bands sound live maybe and myself and maybe tim too our expectations you know going back to a recording this whole you know put out by a, a, an upstart label our expectations would have been it would be a lot rougher so 
Mm-hmm. Um, I was pleasant, pleasantly surprised, at least from um, the Soundgarden stuff, how good it sounded. Right. I mean, it should also be noted that in, in you know, this was recorded in 1985. This was not a common, you know, putting out an independent album like this was not. I mean, nowadays it's like everyone does it. I mean, mm-hmm. especially with digitally technology, digital technology. But you know, back then it was like this unheard of you know very difficult process it wasn't like you could just go out and make a record it wasn't uh wasn't an easy thing to do it was kind of like it was a big process and 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 a lot of the bands here are, are you know recorded for the first time and it was a true compilation in that all these bands recorded at the same studio right and they were all sort of mixed together and mastered together it wasn't like compilations are typically now where you submit a song from wherever you record whether home or something <laughs> super professional studio i mean this was everybody all in together kind of kind of approach yeah right? i mean the way the way they did it uh was that they had two representatives from each band were allowed to come into the mix down and uh, have their say so it didn't get too unwieldy but by chris hansick's estimation that that seemed to affect also mm-hmm. affected you know too many too many cooks i guess it was as he said it was kind of a very democratic thing probably probably too democratic ultimately but you know it's sound wise yeah i mean it does sound raw and scrappy and but it, and I mean, also some of the song you know these are very very early seminal recordings by some of these bands and clearly not with what they became so it's it's not the best album in the world but it's i think it's a it's an important album the second band i wanted to get to is the melvins Well, they have four songs, which is the most of any band. They almost take up about a quarter of the whole compilation. There's an article referenced from The Rocket on, in page 81 of the book that said that the bands that made up this third category, which was grunge, they couldn't open for Metallica and they couldn't open for The Exploited because they weren't metal enough or they weren't punk enough. And to me, the Melvins sort of almost sum up exactly what that is in that weird third category because the Melvins display on one song absolutely pummeling metal and then they have this like you know if you look the beginning of the song scared almost has this happy vocal melody like playfulness to it reminded me of Weezer yeah it had a Weezer feel to it it was totally bizarre so do you guys think that that's am I off base or do you think that the Melvins are kind of especially here I think you know I, I, I wasn't totally familiar with the Melvins catalog all the way through, so I went back and I was on Spotify for the like the last week, just listening to everything I could of the Melvins. And obviously, their sound changed, but in terms of where they were at when this came out, do you guys think that they were kind of the poster child for this sound? They're certainly one of them. They certainly you know, have that those metal roots and and have the punk roots. And they were you know they were began as a, as a hardcore band, essentially really speedy. Which I mean, you get some of the sense in some of these songs, and then. Uh, they did the drastic thing of, of slowing down, not not entirely, not and not in every song as Buzz Osborne would point out, but that that was the thing that they were most associated 
associated with was this slowing down. It should be noted they they do have four songs. There's the two of them are only like 40 seconds, so I don't know if they're hogging that much that much time on it. Obviously, Melvins were were the huge influence on, on Nirvana, and who obviously also personified that sound. Yeah, I would think from a I guess from a Midwestern perspective on what I think of, you know, as the grunge sound or the Seattle sound, I think that they are probably a little bit more metal than what I would think of for the sound. But what's interesting reading the book is that and really doing research on, on the on the origins, metal is one of the important ingredients that I think kind of gets overlooked. It's almost like we view it here as we think more about the result um, of the, the stuff that we saw come out of it, which was more you know, uh, you're further into the 90s at that point. Um, and some of the metal had been toned down a little bit or uh, in terms of like n- what Nirvana had taken their metal influence and turned it into, you know, where it's a little bit more pop oriented and it's not as abrasive, I guess. Um, yeah. So for me, it was sort of a it was sort of a realization of how important uh, the Melvins were to uh, developing other bands, I guess, and spurring and pushing other bands forward. I want to get this right, but I really was really fascinated in the book by sort of the tossing of the the baton of drop D tuning from one band to another. I thought that yeah. was really cool. And it started with the Melvins, right? Weren't they the first ones to discover what drop D tuning was? And didn't he well, tell we, us Kim uh, Thale? <laughs> and Kim Thale told Jerry yeah. Cottrell and the rest is history. Well, I mean, obviously, obviously, uh, the Melvins picked it up from way it goes. Obviously, Black Sabbath. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, uh, a friend of the Melvins picked it up from Black Sabbath, taught the Melvins. Melvins uh, passed that knowledge on to uh, Kim Thale, and and then he passed it on to Jerry Cantrell. So that was kind of the line I drew, um, tracing the, this. Uh, drop detuning which in many ways you know gives grunge its sound i feel like i drew a pretty direct line from, from between all those bands the melvins were clearly at the forefront of that they were, and they were hugely influential as far as all these bands go and now we have that. a million bands that abused um drop detuning to follow <laughs> but i totally relate to like his and what i meant like he didn't invent drop detuning but he discovered it and i totally relate to like that you know, when you're a kid and just, you know, getting the music, maybe you start playing an instrument. You're like, how do they do that? Like, why right. when I play my guitar, does it not sound like <laughs> I'm playing the same chord? Why does it sound totally different? And you sort of like, oh, they're using something called distortion. And then right. yeah. uh, all these all these other tunings. So I just really appreciated that, you know, sort of revealing that discovery and then showing how it, like you said, drew that clear line through all of these bands and uh, th- going back and listening to what they sounded like at this point, it, it really, um, it really amplifies that. It makes it crystal clear after you, uh, if you're reading the book and, and listen to the compilation at the same time. So next band we wanted to get to is green river.
Green River is in a lot of ways <laughs> thought of as the amoeba of of grunge. People think of it mostly because you've got people from Pearl Jam and people from Mudhoney who detoured through Mother Love Bone in this band. But when I was listening to Green River, I, I was actually thrown a little bit because for as much as, and I, I kind of found this ironic in reading the book, for as much as they bag on, you know, the 80s metal, you know, what those guys, what that scene was and the LA scene and the Sunset Strip scene and sort of like characterizing them all and then later getting pissed off that they were all being characterized as just these lumberjack flannel wearing, you know, Seattle guys. I kind of thought that Green River was the closest thing to a 80s metal band if you take out Mother Love Bone, which is not on the compilation. But they they reminded me a lot of sort of the darker, dirtier elements of the L.A. Sunset Strip 80s metal bands. Now, Jay, you're um, our resident expert on those sorts of bands. (laughs) Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Uh, You hate that I call you that? You have a Ph.D. in metal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's no. I put so much pressure. No, I totally agree. I, 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 what school do you get a PhD in metal at? Yeah, no shit. I should have went. School of rock. Are you? Is it an accredited university? I will uh, tell you. I I remember way more about um, the metal bands I learned about in high school than the things I learned about in high school. That's for sure. I think this band sounds a lot more metal than even Mother Lovebone did. Now you have to take. You have to remove. Uh, Mark Arm's vocals and just listen to the music, uh, particularly on a song like uh, Your Own Best Friend. The beginning of that song sounds a lot like Iron Maiden. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit slowed down, a little bit different guitar tone. But, you know, the minor picking, they even put in like the muted cymbal hits and the drum hits, you know, and the bass hits at the beginning, the dynamics of new wave of British heavy metal, you know, type type mm-hmm. dynamics. Um, it has a galloping bass line almost at times. Like the bass and the bass part sounds a lot like uh, totally metal. Venom or Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it may be, I, I was completely fascinated just by thinking of all those elements coming together, what I know and read about Mark Arm's personality. And I couldn't help but wonder was he even aware of how metal these guys were? Or was it just he was, you know, so not into any of that that it didn't even hit his radar? Like in terms of like, oh my god, these guys are playing an Iron Maiden song that I'm singing over top of. <laughs> or did he not, well, just not even care? I, I, no, he. I mean, he he knew that that was the essential tension in, in Green River that that Mark Arm. I mean, obviously, he was more influenced by Iggy and the Stooges and things of that ilk, which came out even more on Mud Honey and the rest. You know, the other guys in the band, particularly Jeff and Stone. You know, there was a lot of metal in there. Um, I mean, Aerosmith was, uh, well, it was probably a shared, shared reference, but, um, you know, I mean, if you look at the picture, one of the, the photo of Green River that that's in the book, I mean, they essentially look like a, a sunset strip band. I mean, there's Stone Gossard with a kerchief around his you know neck and he's not wearing a shirt and, and, uh, Jeff Ament is like, uh, wearing, I don't know if it's a satin shirt or he looks like a New York doll basically. Uh, Mark Arm looks relatively punk, but you know they they look glam. They they definitely took glam influences. I mean, Steve Turner, who was guitarist in in Green River and later uh, in Mudhoney, that's why he left. He was too metal for his taste. He wasn't into that. So there was there was this essential uh, tension in that band. Probably one of the you know what 
ultimately tore them apart. I would say mm-hmm. to be re- to be reductionist about it. That is well. Sometimes tension Ooh, is good it? for a band, but sometimes it it actually just doesn't work out. And I think that's probably well, the it, case. I think it kind of it kind of works. It's just I mean, obviously they both became greater when they separated. I don't know. Musically, it's not awful or embarrassing or. It's just fascinating that you can, I mean, you can really just hear the division. And somehow at times it melts together and the two, um, you know, sort of make up for each other, which is, which is kind of interesting. But uh, I, I was just, I was shocked at going back and listening to it now, just how apparent those influences were. And I bet at the time if I would heard it, I would have never even heard the references. But now with this much distance, you can kind of come with a fresh perspe- perspective and a little bit more of an open mind and say, oh my God, yeah, that's that's an Iron Maiden intro. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm, sure it was, I'm sure it was probably a very deliberate rip on yeah. their part as well. Yeah. It just occurred to me that Green River is sort of the Uncle Tupelo of grunge in that they, they split up and became way more successful. At least one of them, one side of it did. Stone and Jeff became the Wilco and yeah. uh, Mark and Steve became the Sunvolt J. Farrar side. But they're both kind of revered as being the, the progenitors of a particular genre of music, with Uncle Tupelo. Hey, I just made it. I just made a totally <laughs> random association. I knew I would squeeze Uncle Tupelo into this one. Oh man, <laughs> is that a, is that a recurring theme on this show? Uh, I have a I have a bit of a. Everybody knows I'm a huge Wilco, Jeff Tweedy, Uncle Tupelo, Jay Farrar fan. His, uh, his nickname is Uncle Tim Cavolt. Yeah. <laughs> I see. That was my college nickname, yeah. He has an un- uh, unhealthy obsession with, with uh, those bands. I gotcha, I gotcha. But yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. The, the, uh, the Yeah, I buy it. Sure. And, Excellent. And I, love how, I love how the band ends in the book, too. It's just kind of like they all... It just seemed like at one point they were like, you know what, we've gone as far as we can. It's over. And they were all just like, okay. And just moved on. It wasn't like some big dramatic... You know, falling out, and where you know one person didn't want to quit, and they tried to go on. It was just sort of like the way it's presented in the book. There was just an epiphany of like we've gone as far as we can, and it's time to do something else, and nobody's gonna cry about it, really. Well, I mean, I think I mean that this conflict is it was always presented was Jeff and Stone who went on to ultimately, as as you know, form you know form Pearl Jam, <clears throat> were the quote unquote more careerist guys. They were the guys who wanted to get signed. Uh, Mark mm-hmm. Arm, on the other hand, had the, more of the, the punk DIY ethic. So, I mean, they ba- they basically uh, their their careers played out kind of in that way. I mean, careerist, of course, being a kind of a slur, but um, you know, as as uh, Jeff would say, you know, if it's careerist to not want to wash dishes the rest of your life, then I guess I'm a careerist, that sort of thing. But <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, that that was uh, you know they wanted apparently wanted Mark Arm to get singing lessons. I mean, I love Mark Arm's voice. It's it's probably not the most commercial voice uh, in the world, a little nasal, and, and uh, it's not Eddie Vedder's voice, that's for sure. It's not this rich baritone. So essential differences. I mean, the, the last show that they played together was uh, was the. They were opening for Jane's Addiction, and and Jeff and Stone talk about how they kind of saw the light. You know, there was this alternative band, Jane's Addiction, doing their own thing and and playing to this packed house, and that that's kind of where where they wanted to go. Whereas, you know, that was not the direction Mark Arm wanted to go in. That's a uh, interesting because when I read that in the book, the last interview we, we did was with with Plexi, and they sort of uh, brought up Jane's Addiction the same way, and it just helped me realize remember how important they were you know to proceed 
all of the the bands that we sort of well i mean particularly nirvana you know i think everybody thinks oh nirvana is the one that changed everything and actually when you really trace it back it's kind of gene's addiction was the first one to kind of stick their foot out and do something completely different and gave confidence i yeah. think to a lot of the people to to be different it was jane's addiction and faith faith no more they were really sort of quote-unquote alternative successes and they, they as you said sort of opened the door a bit and i mean even um allison chains a and r guy makes the you know that val- very valid point that allison chains were having success on the radio prior to nirvana obviously nirvana just blasted the whole thing wide open but there were there were a lot of right. bands a lot of bands that they that did a lot of legwork that led up to the success of nirvana that's right i remember uh csro it was on like a metal compilation that I got at the time that had like Judas Priest on it and like, you know, sort of all of the heavier metal church, a couple other bands, whatever label, I can't whatever label Allison Chains was on, put out a, a compilation around that time and it had CSRO on it before the album came out. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is different. <laughs> and I think they even tour, maybe did a little tour with those bands. So yeah, they were definitely uh, making waves a little bit way before nirvana was but it was more they were definitely being marketed as a metal band yeah yeah they, they were they were probably more of a metal band that you know retroactively more fit into this this grunge grunge uh labeled grunge i suppose you know a lot of people have accused allison chains of jumping on a bandwagon i think the argument is made by someone in the book that it was a little bit more uh natural in evolution than that it was you know although some would still say that they jumped on this grunge bandwagon but i mean it's certainly also with the media labels these bands well i think they're they seem different and distinct enough that you kind of have to give them a pass however you uh you want to line the timelines or what have you i I don't think they necessarily sound very much like any of those other bands so right i mean they came from an entirely different scene the suburban metal scene which was different than where all the sub pop bands were coming from they were they were from different side of the tracks quite literally well you know that that brings up a point i, w- I was thinking in the book as i got into the to some of the um allison chain stuff i really wanted to pull up a map of seattle <laughs> it kind of becomes important as you uh you go through the history here because it bounces around from from different areas and sort of you know bainbridge island to i think they're just allison chains was described as being from the suburbs whatever mm-hmm. or more of a suburb band just right. wanting to see like visually like how does what does all that look like and how far away are these places and there's a lot of talk you know olympia's in there and aberdeen and all these cities like how f- close and it just made me want to pull a map out and like, kind of look at this and see how spread out was this because you i don't know for some reason when you think of it from our perspective it's kind of like we imagine like a two block radius with you know <laughs> one awesome practice space you know and a couple great clubs <laughs> and you don't realize it's whole it's a whole like and it's not even, i mean it's probably geographically way bigger than like a new york city scene or even an la scene isn't it right. I mean, in terms of well, you I mean, start mapping sh- out how far apart all these cities were it, it should be noted that you know the melvins we've already discussed were not from they weren't from seattle they were from Aberdeen and Montesano, they were from my, you know, which was, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours outside of Seattle. So they were, you know, they were, they were a distance away. They, they were not a Seattle band in the proper sense of the term. That should be noted. So, um, and, you know, Olympia was its own scene, bands like Beat Happening in particular, and, and K Records, which is a whole other offshoot of, of, of music, but, you know, yeah, it's pretty near grunge. No, no, but obviously their their history very much tied into 
history of grunge. I mean, they're, yeah. they're just because of geographical proximity and, and it's the, these musicians knowing each other and, and occasionally collaborating. I mean, Screaming Trees did a split single with, um, or split EP with uh, Beat Happening, for instance, two bands that have very little in common, but uh, somehow, somehow that came about, so. And I think for like the seventh podcast in a row, the Screaming Trees and Mark Lanigan get brought up. He's like oh. he's like the uh, the ghost that we are chasing <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> or is he the guys from Plex- I don't know. The guys from Plexi played with him. Uh, we had what did we do before that? There was uh, Sean Smith, Alan Johannes. Yeah, Alan Johannes. Johannes. I can't always mispronounce his name. So eventually, we're scared of him, but we will get him on this show we assume that he's probably always just sitting in front of an old typewriter with a cigarette dangling out of his mouth right typing lyrics with a with a, with a in very, a log cabin in a log cabin with a scotch yeah. or a whiskey a shotgun next to him right yeah. he's probably actually on his blackberry drinking a four loco right now or something but don't ruin them <laughs> don't ruin you... the image <laughs> um yeah yeah um yeah, well, I mean, obviously, oh, I mean, Screaming Tree is also uh, from Ellensburg, which was outside of Seattle, so not a Seattle proper band either. Even though, and, you know, a lot of, for the sake of, you know, a lot of these bands are just loved into this quote-unquote Seattle scene, but not necessarily well, from there. That's a good segue right there into Malfunction. The Return to Olympus album, and I'd heard Mother Love Bone mostly because of the the single soundtrack back in the day. And then I kind of, after I heard the the song on there, kind of found the album. Malfunction in the retrospect didn't seem to fit until <coughs> I heard this compilation because they always seemed way more into Bowie and seventies glam, and they didn't seem to have that darkness that the the Sabbath darkness that a lot of the other bands had especially you know we were talking earlier about the recording of uh i think it's with your heart and not your hands of mm-hmm. them not thinking the guitar was loud enough do you think that that was actually that they really wanted the guitars louder because they just wanted them louder or was it a matter that they were in lumped in with all these other which were really kind of loud bands and they felt like they had to step it up because the <laughs> album I, I listened to return olympus just today and it there's nothing as loud and as heavy with that one song and i wonder if they felt somewhat competitive when they were or if it was just a matter of you know they wanted kevin smith's guitar to be ridiculously loud right kevin, kevin wood i mean kevin, wood. kevin smith no i mean i think i mean he was kind of uh kind of a guitar hero and you know and, and, and i mean it was described 
uh, one person described it as just like this insane guitar solo that just kept going and going and then you know there was music but it never the guitar <laughs> never stopped it was just like this ongoing uh i mean they were they were they were fast and they were a little more hardcore flavored i think than that comes across here and in some of the recorded music from what i gather i mean you can also watch them on youtube but i mean they also had andy wood who was this incredibly magnetic personality who you know site would say Elton John is a huge influence, just this showmanship. I mean, that, that was kind of very different, very different from uh, the other bands. I mean, I think With Your Heart Not In Your Hands is like, of the songs on the, this compilation seems to have the most personality to it, I would argue. And it's my favorite song on the album, I think. It's certainly, I, I guess, the most fun. <laughs> it's not a very fun yeah. album, but this is certainly the most, the most fun song. Um, and I, the Melvin, you, you can look it up. The Melvins covered uh, covered that song too. They're, they're, those those two bands admired each other quite a bit. But you know, Andy, Andy Wood was was a real huge personality. I would I would recommend people. There was a documentary that just came out on DVD last year called Malfunction: The Andy Wood Story, which is really good overview of his life and his bands and music. It's really it's it's quite good. It's everything. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the Pearl Jam documentary that just came out, Cameron Crowe's documentary. I would I would recommend the Malfunction documentary over that. You'll you'll get a lot more understanding, I think, of, of Seattle and the Seattle scene and what went into the music and the, the interplay of, of the various characters from that. Jay, I think you'd agree, I have right? that. I actually watched uh, I watched the extras. It's fascinating. There, there's some stuff. I mean, there's just, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of footage of like Chris Cornell, Stone Gossard, Andy, like all of those guys just sitting on a tour bus, just talking and having fun and just running tape on them. And you can just see like their personalities. And there's another scene with them like hanging out after a, uh, I think a Judas Priest show mm-hmm. at some arena. And they're just wandering. <laughs> I don't know if. They- other local played or they just went to the show or what was going on but you know they're just there hanging out and you just get a really true sense of like what these guys were like what their how unpretentious they were <laughs> sort of I, I think now we think back of them being like i guess not having a sense of humor or whatever and you totally see that come through and yeah it is it's it's really 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 well done yeah. and it's just uh his story well, is just amazing and it keeps coming up too we, we interviewed sean smith and mm-hmm. right he, he was, was a yeah, you could tell he was really affected by him and was friends with him a little bit and, you know, really cherished that quite a bit and had a huge influence on him, which I'm a huge Sean, Sean Smith fan and wasn't that aware of how influenced he was by him. So, Well, that, that's you brought up a good point. That's one of the rumors or, or misconceptions about grunge, that it was all these humorless, po-faced guys who didn't smile, which, would, you know, mm-hmm. there, there were certainly a few <laughs> who kind of came across that way. <laughs> You know, for the most part, they were, you know, and especially in talking to them now, very funny, funny guys, like many musicians, I'm sure, as you guys know. Um, they weren't, you know, they, they were painted as the serious guys with the heroin problems, and, and certainly some of them did succumb to that. But, but still, even, you know, even like guys like Lane Staley and, and Kurt Cobain, who were sometimes painted as as being humorless, were, were incredibly funny guys by all accounts. Obviously, there was a darker side, but it's kind of too easy sometimes to focus on that. On the malfunction songs that are on here, the oh, right. the, the one, uh, uh, which one is it? Not, not Stars uh, New. Yeah, <laughs> that that's just unlike what I would ever think 
of something that Andy Wood would do just in terms of just how angular it is and just noisy and, and kind of chaotic. But in a way, I, I kind of I kind of love it. The best way I could describe it is it sounds like a Ted Nugent record backwards. It's just insane <laughs> sounding. And then with your heart, it really showcases Kevin Wood's guitar playing quite a bit. And it really reminded me of uh, Sean Smith just did a record with him <coughs> from the north. And it sounds right. a lot like that. Like the riffs from that song sound a lot like the riffs that he um, did for this this new record he did with Sean Smith. It just made me appreciate him as a guitar player again. You can kind of see in that song, um, like you said, how he, he was picture him as a guitar hero on that scene. And mm-hmm. in some ways, this would have been early on in their or earlier in their develop in their career in songwriting than say like Return to Olympus, right? I mean, Return to Olympus was a posthumous release. I mean, it didn't come out until after Andy Wood passed away. So, I mean, they didn't really have a big recording output. It's funny, though, that you mentioned it, because Malfunction are back. They have a a new singer. Yeah, there's a single on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're coming out with a new album. I'd probably be out this year, I'm assuming. Um, Supposedly, some of Andy's old lyrics will be used. Which makes, I guess, by my count... Three of the bands on this on this compilation are are still in existence, which would be them and Soundgarden and the Melvins, who pretty much kept going ever since. Right. Obviously, Soundgarden had a thirteen year gap, but uh, so that's three out of six. So fifty percent are still around in some hmm. form. Uh, one of the bands that is not around anymore is Skinyard. Previously reviewed Grunt Truck <coughs> on this podcast, which featured the same singer, Ben McMillan. I want to get to him in a minute, but one of the things I found on Jack and Dino's website, who was in Skinyard, he talks about how he doesn't, he's not really, I don't think he's happy with the way these songs sound. He said, the, the quote is, um, these versions cannot be said to rock in any sense of the word. They are slow, <laughs> drony, and semi-psychedelic, and we're pretty out of place on this record. And then they both, they, both the songs were re-recorded for um, future releases. I actually found myself liking these songs, but the thing that I noticed, and especially on, I think, the second Skinyard track, which is The Birds, it almost, Ben McMillan almost sounds like he's getting like Nick Cave territory. And when you hear him in Grunt Truck, he doesn't sound anything like this. Yeah, I mean, I, Jack and Dino expressed that same thought to me that this, you know, he, he's kind of chagrined that this is, I mean, a lot of people, when they know Skinner, they know them, but from these two songs, and he's just like, these are not representative of our band. We're, we're a lot more metal than most of the other bands, and Skinyard were, were a lot more metal. 
which is probably one of the reasons they were never on Sub Pop, even though Jack and Dino produced pretty much all the bands on Sub Pop. He was the guy, for those who don't know, who did Bleach, who did uh, Mud Honey, Super Fuzz Big Muff, who did Soundgarden's early stuff. So, I mean, he was basically the in-house producer at Sub Pop. Um, and he was a guitarist in Skinner. But, I mean, it, there there is that kind of almost British feel to it, like Bowie-esque vocals somewhat. And I, I think Ben McMillan, Ben McMillan was not a, a he, he had no training as a singer. I think he was just still finding his way. I mean, it, sound, it sounds nothing like the guy, obviously, that, you know, singing in grunge rock. So I think these were just early, early <laughs> recordings that, you know, for better, for you know, for, much to Jack, uh, Jack and Dino's chagrin are, are are become what many people think of when they think of Skin Yard. One of the things that stood out to me when their first track comes on is his voice. He actually delivers some lines and some melodies and things that really stand out from everybody else on this that, that I was kind of surprised. The flip side of that is he gets way overly dramatic and almost Jim Morrison-esque, or it kind of sounds like art rock opera at times. Definitely um, art, definitely like, art rocky, like yeah. The, uh, like theatrical. And then the one song, I think the second song has a uh, saxophone on it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, not, not saxophone, was, not very grungy. Not very grungy. No, at all, no. So that was a, that was a surprise. Uh-huh. I'm sure yeah, I mean, not thrilled about that being on this. In many ways, Skin Yard were, were the odd band out there, one of the last bands added basically to as Kim Thiel explained to me, sort of make it around, you know, even six, uh, you know, the U-Men were, were the, the big band that, uh, the big band at the time that they, you know, really needed to be on this compilation. They, or at least Kim felt to make it successful. And, you know, they, they were last basically up until the last minute, wasn't sure if they were going to be on it or not. And then they, you know, recorded their one song for it. And the U-Men, I was completely unaware of them prior to reading the book and then listening to the the compilation. I think uh, they might have been mentioned. There's a documentary that came out in the 90s called Hype that mm-hmm. I, I saw at the time when it came out, and then I revisited it a couple years ago. And I think they get mentioned in that. From this one track, way different than what you think of in terms of grunge. I would describe it as almost like rockabilly Captain Beefheart. They don't have the darkness. They're they're way more playful uh, with their songwriting. And from reading about them, they were not the dour men on stage that a lot of the other bands uh, were accused of being. I remember. I think the first show that they played um, involved them. Not the first. I mean, it was the first show where they caused some things to blow up. Was that the first show that they played? With the <coughs> No, the the Bumbershoot show was not their first show, but that was their most legendary show, and that's how the okay. book begins, where they, they they 
planning the Bumbershoot Festival, which was actually uh, right around the time of this, the recording of Deep Six. Um, and they played the Bumbershoot Festival, which, you know, still goes on in Seattle at the time. It, you know, it was at the Seattle Center and at the Mural Amphitheater, which had a moat surrounding the stage filled with water. And, and during the, the last song, the, the roadies filled it with uh, lighter fluid. And, and, you know, John Bigley, the singer, came out with a lit broom and lit the moat on fire, which you can, you can see a picture of it actually in the book. It, it described by many as being super impressive but you know the the accounts of it vary so widely unfortunately there were no nobody was nobody nobody had camera phones back then it would have been quite something <laughs> to see yeah that that was kind of their most legendary show i mean they were known for their their onstage stunts and antics but yeah they definitely had more rockabilly feel and and, and the captain beef part references is probably spot on because they, they do um a couple of the members did cite captain Beefheart as a um an influence yeah they were a little bit more punk rock i mean it, it, their terms sometimes godfathers of grunge or grandfathers of grunge or some um you know because they, they were so influential all the bands all the people i spoke to everyone saw the U-Men. they were <clears throat> one of the you know the city's most beloved sort of underground bands they were you know highly influential from their theatricality especially i think uh influenced people i don't really think of those bands of being theatrical other than maybe you know malfunction and and andy wood <laughs> a, diff- a different way in a very different way yeah I, I mean i think in hindsight now it seems this song uh it, it's hard to it's hard to hear the judging by this song the what impact this band had on the other bands um it just seems so different maybe at the time it would have made more sense but now it just seems like it probably doesn't help that it's the last song on the record either because it sort of right. feels a little bit like tacked on. Is there material like easy to get? I know Skin Yard is pretty t- difficult to find any stuff and we know Malfunction has one record that was put out after Andy's passing. Is there is there stuff easy to find? Yeah, I mean, there, there's one human album that pretty much, you know, compiles all their stuff. I mean, okay. Skin Yard albums aren't particularly hard to find. This, You know... <laughs> Go to go to half.com, you could probably get them all. And uh, I mean, Malfunction obviously just have that one compilation. There's right. like a zillion, zillion Melvin's albums, and you know, the Green River yeah. uh, sub com- compiled most of their stuff onto one CD. So it's yeah, I, should, t- I, sh- I should have qualified that if it's not on iTunes or Spotify or eMusic, then it's hard to find. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, is that the, I yeah. guess that's the new definition of yeah. I mean, Spotify is actually pretty disappointing when it comes to some of this early grunge stuff uh a lot of it just not there so yeah it's not it's not as complete complete as uh it was it was promised in the beginning but uh you know you can find some of it and certainly uh i haven't checked itunes for these things but they know you know you can certainly get the cds usually at deeply discounted rates (laughs) how different is this song from the rest of their catalog or is it oh that you meant i mean they, they certainly a lot of it had that kind of uh, rockability feel to it and sort of the punk rock feel. I mean, in some ways, they, as you'll read in the book, they kind of had a kinship with a lot of the bands from Austin, like the Butthole Surfers or Poison 13 bands like that. Right. You know, they, they, they were coming maybe from a little bit. They, they were a little older than most of these guys. It, you know, they had feet in different worlds. They were definitely the cool older kids. And they were definitely, a little, as you'll see as you read, less 
they they weren't really compromising in their vision. They weren't. They were definitely not seeking success, and they perhaps could have had success because obviously, you know, they broke up before Seattle kind of uh, took off. But they, they had they gotten back together, they could have tried to take advantage of it. But that was not mm. that was not their desire. Tom Price obviously went on to form form Gashuffer, you know, which had which had. Um, some moderate success, but what, they weren't a grunge band by any stretch of the imagination. I guess they, mm-hmm. they the men were, were you know pretty widely respected, and they, their importance to the Seattle scene became more evident the more people I talked to. It just they were just the band that for a while in Seattle, and you missed one of their shows at your peril. They were sort of you- uh, role models, right, and, and not necessarily. Uh- Say like a yeah. Melvin's, where you can see you can see the linear, you can see the musical influence from like a Melvin's to a Nirvana. This is more of like a role models of like how you can conduct yourself, how you, you know, the what ethics you know are are an ethos and stuff do we believe in? What are we trying to do? And how do we put on a show? Yeah, I mean, they, they were the first or one of the first, I should say, bands to actually get out of Seattle to tour the country, which was a huge yeah. deal back then. Now, now we take it for granted, but there wasn't that infrastructure of clubs and. You know, oftentimes, as the guys would say, they would get to clubs and they, they would have been closed for a couple of weeks by the time they got there. So it wasn't it wasn't the same as it is now with booking agents and, and organized club systems. So they, they were real pioneers. They, Yeah, I think they led more by example than that. I don't think they were so much sonically imitated as, as they were like kind of the forebears and they were the pioneers of sorts. Well, usually at this point in the show, we would do some sort of wrap up and suggest the album for people or give a final review but i don't know that that's necessarily appropriate i kind of feel like uh this is sort of like if you um if you like goodfellas you have to watch the godfather to understand where goodfellas is coming if you like so many of the bands that came after nirvana alice and chains up until god forbid the bad you know third generation grunge bands you kind of need to go back and listen to this and and the sub pop 100 to hear where it all started this is the uh, these are the dinosaur bones of that sort of era probably say sub pop 100 was actually not that it was if i may interject was it was more like uh bands like sonic youth and and uh Shonen knife and steve albini and and the u-men were actually on that too but it wasn't so much the seattle uh sound as sub pop 200 which was kind of like what we recognize as, as the classic era of sub pop, which was Tad and Nirvana and Mudhoney and Soundgarden and Green River and, and Catbutt, bands like that that came out in uh, 88. So that, that would probably be also a very good starting place. Excellent. I'm glad that's why we have smarter people that. than us on the show. Yes. <laughs> Wait, where, where are the smarter, where are the smarter yeah. people hiding? I don't know. All right. We teased it earlier, but we're going to get to it now. We have a trivia question and the winner of this trivia question will be selected at random by posting the correct answers, plural to either, uh, the dig me out Facebook page or, Mark's Facebook page, uh, which you can which go to is. Facebook. Yeah, Mark, what is your Facebook page? It's uh, obviously facebook.com slash everybody loves our town. All one word. Everybody loves our town. And ours is uh, slash dig me out podcast. 
we'll have a we'll both post uh, a thread that you can then in the comments post the answer and then we will randomly pick one winner and I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to limit this to the United States of America people. Due to the declined economy and uh, the high cost of shipping due to gas prices, we will <laughs> not be able to ship around the world. This will be limited to the United States of America. We will come up with something else for our fans in the UK and Australia. Perhaps something that will not cost as much to ship. But we're going to give away. <laughs> like an MP3. And, yes, we will shipping yeah. MP3. <laughs> Or a piece of paper. We'll send you a letter that says you've won. Uh, we're going to be giving away a sealed copy of the vinyl Deep Six compilation so kindly provided by our guest, Mark Yarm. The trivia question is... I'm going to put a little drum roll here so that we have a tr- drama. Mark, do you want to re- give us our, the trivia oh, question? Sure, sure. Well, I should add also Chris Hansen. Uh, you know, the man behind Deep Six was kind enough to uh, yes. provide this copy. It's, it's it's not coming from me. He should get all the credit for that. And uh, it is an original sealed copy. It's um, don't sell it on eBay, but they they fetch they fetch a nice price on eBay. But uh, hold I, on I to it for s- at least a year before you <laughs> hurt our feelings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't want to see this on eBay. So, question is, of all the musicians who played on Deep Six, two of them have since passed away. They're no longer with us. Who are those two musicians? And I'll give you one hint. Both of them were singers. There you go, folks. Post your answers to our Facebook pages. If you post in both, we're going to count it as one. You don't get two entries. Post it. We will pick. You have uh, one week to answer. Look, basically, this doesn't cost you anything, so don't get mad at us if we randomly change the rules. We're not professional trivia hosts. Uh, the same publisher's clearing of, Yeah, this is a publisher's clearing house, exactly. We'll have it all sorted out by the time uh, it goes up online, so then they, yes. they read the rules then and, and uh, adhere to those rules. Answer the question right, and you'll get a chance to get the Deep Six comp on vinyl, sealed. That's sealed. Pretty damn good. Yes. We need to thank our guest, and we need to plug his website, which is grungebook.tumblr.com, which is, is the home of Everybody Loves Our Town and Oral History of Grunge. You can you can find, starting today, uh, March 13th, you can find it in paperback at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, thanks to Three Rivers Press, who are putting that out. You can also find it uh, hardcover. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Press, or you can, I believe, get the um, digital version on iTunes. And then if you are in the UK, if you're one of our UK listeners, and you're not upset at us for excluding you from the contest, you can go to, you can order from Amazon and Waterstones to pick up the book. All Oops. right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Mark, for uh, for coming on and uh, joining us, and um, best of luck with the release of the paperback. And, yeah. Uh, with, and, uh, I'm going to be Thanks, driving Melvin, Melvin across country. That's my Nice. <laughs> Spreading. Throwing, throwing free books out as I, as I scoot along. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Mark. We're out of here. We'll be back Thanks, next guys. week with another episode. Dig me out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages 
and thanks for listening.